Climbing Mayhem. I'm glad you asked. One day, Ty Wolf Jones and I were talking about some of the biggest, hairiest problems on earth. And we started obsessing about the question, can sustainability and capitalism coexist? Look, because isn't what we've been doing the past 40 years not really working? No, it's not. And this blame the big business route where we've made for-profit companies and corporations the enemies, the martyrs of this climate mess we're in, isn't working. Well, don't get us wrong. It might be true. It just hasn't stopped us from emitting tons more carbon, creating tons more plastic waste, and degrading our landscapes even more every day. So don't we need to do something different? Isn't there a huge window of opportunity here? Yes, we need change, which means we need innovators, big thinkers, people out there willing to take the risks. Yes, we need people willing to tackle the hardest, most nebulous problem right now, climate change, and we need to align incentives to do so. They need to be able to make money off of these earth-defining solutions. So, coupling our love for startups and planet Earth, we had to talk to these people. And Climate Mayhem was born. So listen along while we speak with entrepreneurs and operators in different verticals of climate tech who are striving to make a difference. Oh, and make some money while doing it. And from some pretty incredible companies like Impossible Foods, EVgo, Drone Seed, Carbon Collective, Floodbase, and even mission-driven venture capitalists. And are you an entrepreneur or someone about to get into this space? Guarantee you'll definitely learn something from these impressive visionaries and learn just how possible it is to take on this seemingly impossible. Mayhem on. Have you ever heard of the villain test? Well, I had neither until I met today's guest. Sophie Bacalar joins us today, a partner at Collaborative Fund, a venture capital firm that's been in climate tech for years and is tripling down on it today. So her background spans credit derivatives trading. What the hell is that? Founding her own successful business and beyond. All of this has prepared her for making waves as a climate tech VC. And she's going to help us discover how this villain test challenges conventional thinking and is used to spark positive change. Now, to know Collab Fund is to know their investments. They're invested in leading innovations that are bringing the future faster. Companies like AlginIt, which is seaweed yarn, Amaji, zero emission tractors, Endless West, engineered whiskey, and the list goes on. Now, Ty, what else do we talk about? We cover a lot. Everything from collaborative funds, game-changing approach to rapid catalytic funding through their shared future fund, to Sophie talking about her vision of a future where abundance thrives and really gets away from this notion of sacrifice that climate tech seems to be a lot about. Plus, we dive into our ever-loving burning question, Can you actually make a profit while doing good for the environment? Are you ready for a flurry of ideas? I am. 
Tune in to Sophie talking about the frontiers of sustainable innovation. Made him on! Made him on! Sophie, thanks for coming on the show. Hey guys, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. It's wonderful to have you. Your second VC that we've ever had on The Daily Marketer, but the first one within climate tech. So to us, that's that's super exciting and we're excited to get your perspective on things. I thought we'd kick off with hardball question. Why in the world do you not use an alarm clock? <laughs> well, I, I just think an alarm clock is just a really sort of jolting negative way to wake up. I mean, obviously I did it for many, many years. I didn't just come out of the womb able to wake up on, on command, but yeah, I just never felt rested. I never felt awake when I got out of bed, you know, and it's not just the horrible noise. It's, it's, you know, everything it's, it's partly the horrible noise, but even if you set your alarm to wind chimes or tropical birds or something, you know, the likelihood that your alarm goes off at the exact moment it's supposed to outside of your REM cycle when you're actually rested is, is actually pretty low. So yeah, kind of conditioning myself to wake up the same time every day without an alarm clock, just being consistent so that my body will wake up at that time has actually had a, had a pretty meaningful impact on my life. It, it means that I can wake up and be excited to get out of bed and, and by extension, be excited to go to sleep because I'm not dreading waking up in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. I have to ask, did you, you were able to condition your body for a, a specific time or was it the vice versa? You found a time that you naturally kind of woke up and you conditioned your day to fit into that time. Yeah. I mean, there are a bunch of different ways to do it. There's a ton of research online about how to condition yourself, but the way that I did it was to just be super consistent every single day, seven days a week to wake up at 6 a.m. And I obviously had to use an alarm clock for that at first, but then once your body is so used to waking up around that time, then you stop needing the alarm. It'll, you'll wake up on your own. There's a pretty, you know, there's a pretty narrow band within that. So anything from, you know, 545 to 615. But again, your body sort of figures out when the optimal time to wake is wake up is within that range. Very cool. I've been thinking about a lot. I've been thinking a lot about this since I listened to a podcast. You talked about having a long morning. I don't know if that's like a like a popular concept if someone coined that term, but I just got this book called The 5 a.m. Club. This week I've been trying, trying to wake up at 5:30 instead of like 6:30 and seeing how it affects like how I feel, how I perceive the day. And it feels like I'm getting a win. And it really does make a difference, like getting that additional 45 to 60 minutes. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't advocate for it more. And again, I used to do the exact opposite in my 20s. I was a credit derivatives trader at a hedge fund and had to be at work really early. And so I would try to time it so that I woke up at the last possible second that I needed to wow, and sure yeah yeah be, you know brushing my hair on my way to work just to minimize the amount it's gonna be of up so early I mean yeah and, right. and it was just a miserable way to live because yeah you don't know that you're going to get time after work to do the things that you want to do and so starting your day off that way is so much more valuable and and again it it means that when i wake up i don't linger in bed for a while dreading having to put my feet on the ground i sort of jump up yeah. get back in bed because it's for you for my morning yeah so. right and you're ready to go how has taking a long morning changed your life yeah i mean it really is that feeling of 
waking up and not wanting to hit snooze because I want to jump out and and start doing the things that I like to do. And having me time up front means that it's the first thing that I do is something that I look forward to. So yeah, it's made sleeping easier. It's made getting out of bed easier. It's made going to work so much better. And yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm certainly of the personality type where I like checking things off a list. So getting a few things checked off first thing in the morning kind of sets a good tone for the rest of the day. Yeah. I can imagine that Tim. I'm very similar to you in that way. I noticed the concept of simplicity is important in your life. Can you talk a little bit more about that and what that means? Yeah, definitely. I mean, this isn't a, an official concept. It's just something that I, I try to push myself towards a little bit, mostly because simplicity is kind of the polar opposite of my entire core and essence of being and all of my instincts. You know, it's it's pretty unnatural to me. So I find trying to focus on fewer things and indexing away from clutter and distraction, that actually kind of just pulls me more towards the center and more towards normalcy. But the idea is really that there are a lot of, it's just very easy for me. And I think a lot of us to fill our days with things that aren't actually that meaningful and that actually don't drive really meaningful outcomes in our lives. And so the more that you can cut down on that and be really focused, I think pays dividends in the long run. And there are a lot of different applications to this for everything from setting my calendar to choosing what types of work projects I take on or which companies that I I focus on. But it's also just like the tools and the everyday behaviors that that I use. So I think a good representation of this is actually there was a there was a meme on Twitter not that long ago, and it showed this normal distribution. And on one side, there was kind of a Neanderthal who only uses uses the notes app. And then at the center of the distribution, there was a kind of an average person who uses a dozen different apps and services and all these different tools to optimize their life and their efficiency. And then on the positive, like long tail, there's this enlightened, brilliant being who is only using the notes app. And and so I'm either the Neanderthal, I'm either the Neanderthal or the enlightened being, but that's a representation of how I approach work now. You know, I often say that I'll know that I've I've reached my goal when I can only use my cell phone. I don't need anything else. And I'm just using the notes app and my email. And that's it because I've simplified my life down to just what matters. Yeah. It seems like that takes forcing yourself to pause and ask yourself, is this really important or is this really essential? That's really hard to do for anyone who wants to get a lot done or feels like they're ambitious, right? Exactly. But I I think sometimes the desire to get a lot done gets Mm -hmm. in the way of getting things done. And I think (laughs) represented by that that meme pretty well, which is you just create all this clutter and then you're not actually as effective as you would be if you just removed some of that. 100%. Yeah. It's it's like the fallacy of multitasking, right? There's been this big pushback of like, we don't actually, none of us multitask that well. <laughs> like It's really about focus. And like you said, you know, figuring out that one thing that I can get done, be very effective at and, and do a little bit more of that deep work. 
really, it feels like, it, you know, a reaction to some degree in the startup world out of that hustle culture, you know, that happened, you know, that was really prevalent 10 years ago, eight years ago, nine years ago. And everybody was trying to do everything. And then, yeah, it suddenly became like, no, I'm going to do one thing at a time very well and, and focus. It feels, to your point, more effective, more fulfilling. You're checking things really off the list instead of just busy all the time. Yeah. And for the record, doing one or two things, you can still hustle really hard on those. One right. Things. True. Good point. And uh, it doesn't mean the the opposite of hustling on a dozen different things isn't laziness, right? I think it's actually worse. It's just being much more intentional about where you're focused versus. Absolutely fair. And there's less switching costs. Like in Ty's example, the startup, if you're doing operations and marketing, right? There's that switching cost between the tasks, but then also the disciplines, right? Sophie, how has climate change affected your life so far? You know, I'm actually, I consider myself enormously lucky that it hasn't really directly impacted my life that much, right? I I live in New York where the number of sort of extreme climate-related disasters has been relatively low. You know, I have air conditioning, I have heating at home. So in terms of the actual physical impact that it's had on my life so far, I'm pretty fortunate. But I'm also very mindful that that's not the case for many, many people all over the world right now who are already dealing with the effects of global warming. And that's only increased recently and it's only going to continue increasing. And so, yeah, I think that's why the work that we do is is so important. It doesn't necessarily mean that I have to have experienced the physical impact just yet. I, I know that I will and that my friends and family will, but the fact that the rest of the world is is experiencing that, I think, is um, creating a lot of urgency around what we do. So when do you start thinking about these issues? Or maybe the first time you started thinking about this issue, did you witness people affected by it? Did you watch something? What was it? Yeah, you know, I I would have called myself a quote-unquote environmentalist basically since I was born. Um, it's certainly a, a label I would have ascribed to myself, but I do actually think of environmentalists as quite different from a climate activist, actually. And I got interested in, uh, or, you know, emotionally and, and personally interested in climate and, and fighting climate change. Sometime around 2016, I was on a backpacking trip. And on that backpacking trip, it was just so obvious to me that the rest of the world was really, really far ahead of where the U.S. was in terms of thinking about climate change and the impact of climate change. You know, it it seemed like the writing was on the wall, and yet it was it was bizarre to me that back home, back in the in the states, it really wasn't a topic of conversation that was coming up all that frequently. You know, everyone I knew also would have called themselves "quote unquote" environmentalists, but climate change wasn't really a topic of dinner party conversation per se it was sort of relegated to a fifth sixth maybe even tenth tier um consideration at that point and so yeah that trip and of course the paris agreement they they were huge eye openers for me it was you know not just the content and conclusions of the paris agreement but also the very muted reaction it got back home in the states you know the lack of action was sort of what compelled me to wake up and realize okay, there's something happening here and and I want to be part of it. 
can you summarize for the audience really quick what the Paris Agreement was and, and had an effect on you? Yeah, I mean, the Paris Agreement was a 2016 um, agreement that basically laid out the changes that we needed to make on a global level to avoid two degrees Celsius of warming. And, you know, spoiler alert, we have not <laughs> achieved those. We are in a in a pretty dire situation. And yeah, the again, the the reaction that the conclusions from from the reports that came out of that um, that conference, the reaction that that got from the rest of the world, I think, was very much a oh my gosh, this is this is catastrophic situation that we're in, and we need to make really big changes to try to avoid what's coming. And that that we didn't quite get that U.S. Yeah, I remember an inconvenient sequel came out. It was mm. kind of paired with. The, the Paris Agreement timing or came out, you know, 18 months, eight, eight months later. And it, you know, during it, you watch Al Gore there and he's like trying to help broker this deal between India Energy and, and I think it was that solar company that Elon's involved in. And, and uh, you know, you watch and you're like, wow, this is really important. Like even just that one deal that he's trying to get across the line, if more stuff like that was happening, that like if there was a Paris Agreement conference that was happening every day of the year, you know, like you could see some really amazing <laughs> changes happening, right? One would hope. I mean, it does feel like finally there's, you know, we've caught up and regulators in the U.S. have caught up and and now we're a little bit more spurred to action, but. Yeah. Uh, so you mentioned 2016 and I think it was in 2016 around the time that you started working at Collab Fund. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. Well, that trip, I think, was 2015, 2016. And so, yeah, I came back and I knew that I wanted to do something in climate change. Um, I had started my career as a credit derivatives trader at a hedge fund. Then I had started my own company um, that got acquired. And that's when I started the backpacking trip. And so when I came back, I, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do next, but I knew I wanted to do something in climate or do something to, to fight climate change. And I think the natural natural next step after traditional finance and startup career is is venture capital. Seemed like a good intersection of those two things. Right. Um, yeah. So I I really actively was looking for venture funds that were thinking about climate and sustainability and and maybe had some thesis. But back in 2016, there were very very few investors outside of the impact or nonprofit spaces who were thinking about climate. Um, it just was not an attractive area of investment. But I came across this blog post that my partner, Craig Shapiro, who found a collaborative fund, um, had written. And in that blog post, he talks about sustainability and how he felt it was going to increasingly be a driver of pretty seismic shifts in consumer behavior, um, consumer purchase behavior in particular, and that that was going to create massive opportunity for new companies to come in and form that that we're going to be able to speak to this new type of consumer on a values-aligned basis, whereas incumbents, we're, we're not going to be able to speak about sustainability and climate with any credibility because they had never done so before. So anyway, it just really resonated with me on such a deep and personal level that I aggressively stalked Craig on Twitter for a long time until he took a meeting with me. And, and that was sort of, that was a history in the making. Um, that's Hell yeah. That's awesome. Speaking of Craig, so he, he wrote something called the villain test. Would you mind sharing what is the villain test and 
perhaps what it means to you? Yeah, I think it's a really important framework that we use at Collaborative when we're making investment decisions. Um, so the idea is that, you know, broadly, we're looking to invest in companies that are pushing the world forward or having some positive impact, doing some good in the world. But then a villain would also invest in. And so this is our way of ensuring that we're not just backing sort of feel good, do good projects that aren't necessarily positioned to grow or scale, but we're looking for companies that can do both, companies that are doing good in the world, but are also going to create meaningful outcomes for their teams and their investors and are going to be able to build you know, global, successful, highly impactful companies. So yeah, it's sort of like the devil and angel on your shoulder, right? We want to make sure that are satisfied and think those are the best companies because we are starting to see changes in behavior from customers, both, you know, the end consumers like you and me and from corporates. And some of that is driven by necessity because they're being regulated to change their behavior. And some of it is social pressure to consumers. But at the end of the day, we're all self-interested creatures and you want to make sure that companies are not just solely relying on the benevolence of their customers. They have to add real value. They have to be able to stand on their own um, and add a val- provide a value proposition that goes beyond just doing good in the world, because I think that's that's a hard proposition to maintain over the long run. Yeah, yeah. We could definitely see that. Ty and I had, we had a cloud paper on and their bamboo toilet paper company. And something that he kept driving home was, you know, we we had to make our product as good in parity with you know, leading toilet paper company. And it might sound like such a boring thing to, to think about doing you know, quality control for, but uh, it seemed like that was super important for them to get right. And then they could you know, have fun with the marketing around the, the bamboo and then you know, kind of tie that all together into one package, right, Ty? Well, and they went even a little further where they shipped the toilet paper to you still at the same or if not better cost, et cetera. So it's that, you know, we've been exploring this question now with a number of guests of this. It's that whether you love or hate the guy, it's the Elon Musk, you know, effect of building a brand that people just like, regardless if it actually does good for the world, which I think really resonated with Jacob and I, when we heard about this villain test, we're like, that's what we're talking about here on this podcast is this idea that I know a lot of people feel like capitalism and climate change and climate you're doing good cannot go hand in hand but there's the opposite argument I think that it needs to because we are self-interested people who need to just sometimes have have fun feel good do something that we like regard and not just sacrifice to save the planet you know all the time so and this is one of the things that I get most excited and passionate about in, in the work that we do, because I often find a lot of the reticence around people outside of our sort of climate activist bubble, when they hear about climate change or fighting climate change, they immediately associate that with sacrifice, right? Yeah. They have to give something yeah. up. It's like, oh, I, I can't travel anymore because that's bad. Right. Oh, I can't. <laughs> drink out of the plastic water bottle that I, yeah. you know, bought. I can't I, have know, a plastic straw. I mean, I come on, plastic. plastic. Exactly. They went for our straws first. Like, how did, how did that become yeah. the hill we died on? Yeah. 
Exactly. It's all just inconvenience. They just view it as sacrifice. Yeah. Great word. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be that way. We could, we're completely rebuilding products and structures and supply chains from the ground up. We could rebuild a world that is both better for the climate and better for consumers. And so busting that myth or undermining that assumption is so meaningful to me because I love the idea of fighting climate change and also creating a future of abundance and not sacrifice. Mm-hmm. That's a Ooh, really I like that. Yeah, that's good. So you guys have invested in some super interesting, you could say newsworthy companies. I, I was just looking at a list of them right now. So algae knit, seaweed yarn, brimstone, which is carbon negative cement, and then zelp, methane reducing cow wearable tech. So some pretty cool stuff. What value does CloudFund bring to a climate tech company? Like what is the, what is the sauce that you're putting on that burger? You know? <laughs> like that. Um, yeah. We, we, we need a whole extra hour for this question. But <laughs> yeah. I think one of the, the first things I'll mention, which is really critical, particularly now is that we, we have a lot of experience in climate. You know, it has been a pillar of our investment strategy almost since the beginning. And I think that is important as we're seeing more and more climate funds kind of pop up who maybe don't have quite as much experience and understanding of the climate ecosystem and the timelines and and resources that are necessary to build a successful climate business. But it also means, you know, to your point just now, we've built a portfolio of successful and talented founders within climate, and that pays dividends to future founders because we're able to build a community um, and help leverage some of the resources we have from our existing portfolio for new companies. And yeah, in addition to the companies you mentioned, you know, we've invested in everything from consumer brands like Beyond Meat to pretty high-tech companies like Commonwealth Fusion and, and Brimstone Energy. So yeah, there's a really robust portfolio that we can we can leverage. And another thing I think that's pretty unique about the way that we approach investing at Clab is that we spend a lot more time thinking about things like brand and building really culturally impactful brands than than a lot of other venture funds. And I think I I mean I take no credit for that. I think I give all credit to my partner Craig because um, he has just an absolutely superhuman ability to think about where culture is moving and and how companies brands fit into those cultural movements and how marketing can dovetail with different. I think that is a really unique way of thinking about investing, particularly within climate, where there tends to be a little less focus on things like brand and culture. But I think those are really, really critical to think about because you need stakeholder buy-in, not just from the 1% of consumers or customers who care about these things already, but from the broader sort of cultural landscape. So that is another thing I think that we're we're quite good at. Um, And lastly, we have some really exciting partnerships that we leverage to add a lot of value to our companies. You know, we've been very strategic in structuring our partnerships, particularly for this climate fund, to really add very specific and strategic value. So we just recently announced what we call our Sustainability Advisory Board, and that consists of CSOs from some of the biggest corporates, you know, on the front lines of, of climate. Um, so people like Noel Kinder from Nike and Stacy from Shopify and Emma from Netflix. 
know, a ton of companies that are really at the forefront of putting their money where their mouth is when it comes to everything from purchasing offsets to um, improving their, their everyday business functions to adopting new materials in their supply chains. And so we're able to really leverage those relationships to add a lot of value to our companies, either through advice or through introductions, or in some cases, bringing actual customers to these companies. I think that's some great insight into that secret sauce. I heard his name is Tomash. That's one of the partners. Did I pronounce the name right? Tomas is, yeah, he's one of my colleagues on the Climate Fund. Yeah, so he he talked about, you know, creating a network of networks, right? And I think he was talking about specifically the shared futures, shared future fund, and how that can like, kind of has this catalyst ability to bring together people that are really early in their journey with people that are later in their journey with their startup and incubator programs. And, you know, you mentioned the advisory board, like just all those people together solving the hardest problems we've ever faced is kind of, it's really what we need. Right. And, and you guys are in some way a, a conduit for all those people. And then to the, the culture movement part, I think is extra interesting because it seems like what hasn't been working, you know, the past 20, 30 years is we don't, focus on the cultural movement side of things. We don't focus on the brand side of things. And it's more about just the science, you know, then we confuse people, we confuse consumers with like the complexity of what's in the air and how this product works to, to remove the carbon or something. And it's like, just goes straight over people's heads. So like, it's, it's a different angle that feels like we need to try to take to really reach some sort of a critical mass, right? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think it's, it's really crucial so that we don't inadvertently replicate the same problems we had with you know, climate tech or clean tech 1.0. We need a, a very different story at this time and we need stakeholder buy-in from everybody to make that happen. Exactly. Yeah. So we've heard a little bit about collab fun in general, but I, now that we've got you on the show, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your specific kind of investment philosophy. And I want to call out one company because I did listen to a little bit of what Craig said on another show, but one company that you invested in that I've actually personally watched for years, which was Good Eggs, mainly because, you know, I've been a supply chain startup ops guy forever. And when Good Eggs came out, what, 10, 11 years ago, I was totally infatuated with that. I had a background in organic food and, and that whole world. And I thought, oh, this is cool, man. And Good Egg has, has gone through a journey, right? Like they've gone up and down a couple different times, but you invested in them. I'm, a, I'm thinking on that, like that rebrand, that restructure that they did later on, which to me is interesting because it's a, I think what Craig said at one point was you guys take these risks. You're willing to look at that longer term view. It feels like, how does that play into your investment philosophy? How did that decision come about? You know, those types of things. For you specifically, yeah, definitely. GoodX is a really cool company and case study for venture investing and particularly collab investing. I will say I'm a fan of GoodX, but we were really early investors, and that that investment actually does predate me. Craig made oh, that investment okay. before I joined, so I don't have as much insight into his his rationale at the at the time of the first investment, but I can guess because it's pretty representative of what we were just talking about, which is a company that's on the forefront of a pretty seismic cultural shift, right? I mean, even 10 years ago or, or so when that investment would have been made initially, you know, people were 
engaging with food and shopping for groceries and thinking about the food that they consumed in such a drastically, dramatically different way than they ever had before. And Good Eggs was on the earlier side of that shift, right? It was starting to percolate it. People were starting to make these changes, but it hadn't really quite reached cultural uh, zeitgeist level quite yet. And now we're we're seeing that play out even more so, right? People want to know where their food is coming from. They want to know what they're putting in their bodies. They want the process of getting that food to be maximally convenient and as inexpensive as possible. So yeah, I think Good Eggs is a really great example of a company that was pretty early into, into thinking through some of those opportunities. You know, it is a really, really tough business though. Supply chain management, particularly for perishable goods is, is not an easy thing to execute on. And so when you ask about my personal investment philosophy, I think I tend to put a lot more weight into the ability of a team to execute more than, than anything else. Um, obviously there's a lot of, particularly in climate tech, there's a lot of very technical and scientifically complex companies that we look at and, Sometimes we're going really deep to understand how much IP a company has and where the where the true technical advantages are. But I personally tend to focus a little bit more on commercial strategy and ability of a team to execute because I think that's where most people uh, underestimate the difficulty in in starting and running a business. You know, I'm a two-time founder myself and and some of that is personal experience and and creates bias because that was my personal impression was just that the ability to actually execute and scale a company regardless of of what it is but especially in sort of more of these complex areas within climate tech i think is always more challenging than people think it will be yeah that's a super interesting question that's kind of where i was going to go next because I'm an ops guy. I'm a startup ops guy. I've built a lot of different businesses and all of these things. But in these like processes that we know today, they may be innovative. They may be breaking the mold. But in climate tech, it feels like sometimes we're we're predicting a future where all startups have to predict the future. But this is predicting a future that we still don't actually know. Like the complexity of these products is hugely unknown. Do you think differently about these startup teams, these execution teams that have to even go down, I would guess, a longer road, a longer journey, have a little bit more tenacity and, and staying power than even tech you know, founders have to have, or, or maybe your own experience doing a company. Yeah. I mean, venture is always on a reasonably long cycle, right? I mean, we're investing on an eight to 10 year time horizon, but climate is even longer than that, right? A lot of the companies in the space, it takes 10, 15, maybe even 20 years to really drive at a, at a meaningful outcome. So it's it's important that climate founders, I think, are working with partners who have aligned expectations in terms of timelines, because it is important to make sure that founders understand the, what they're getting themselves into. It's really committing yourself and your life to one cause and that everyone around you is prepared for that kind of slog, right? That your investors, your employees understand it it is a slog. It's really hard for anybody ever to commit themselves to something for, you know, a decade plus, but 
especially now, you know, that it's becoming increasingly unusual that anybody stays in, in one particular job or career for that long. So yeah, you gotta, you gotta really be passionate about what you're doing. I mean, that's, it's a cliche, but it is true. You have to wake up every morning and be interested in what you're working on because it's gonna, it's gonna fade really quickly otherwise. Whoa, what a blast. What'd you think so far? Are you hungry for more? Go check out part two of this conversation. But before you go, could you do us a huge favor and subscribe to the show wherever you're listening to it right now? It'd mean the world to us. Oh, and if you're feeling a little frisky and you want to give us some feedback, go to climatemayhem.com where you'll find our contact link. See you soon. 